opening scripture reading, we read from Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30, the story of the rich young ruler. Some of you that have been coming to our church for a little while, you know that these scripture readings that we have in our services are not random, they're intentional. They're to be helping prepare your mind and heart for what you're about to hear as we unfold and unpack a certain portion of Scripture. So in that story, Luke chapter 18, the rich young ruler, there's a question being asked. Who then can be saved? Did you notice that question? Who then can be saved if a rich man a wealthy, well-respected man who appears to be obeying all of God's laws, if he can't enter eternal life, well, then who can? If you don't think that's a relevant question this morning, then I don't know why you came to church. That's a relevant question. Who then can be saved if wealthy, respected, morally upright, religious seekers who want to know how to inherit eternal life are told, not for you. Everyone seems to assume that man was going to be saved, and they're asking, who then can be saved? And the answer that's given is that by human power, no one will be saved. It is impossible for man to try and save himself, but with God, all things are possible. You know, typically we'll take passages of Scripture like that, and then we will end and think, okay, that's Jesus' answer. But Luke, who is organizing these stories, shows there's another answer to that question. Who will be saved? Just keep reading in Luke's gospel, and you'll notice that after Jesus predicts his death in verses 31 through 34, notice in verse 35, there's two stories that are surrounding Jericho. The first story starts in verse 35 about a blind man who is begging on a roadside. When the crowds see that he's inquiring, they tell him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, so he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, verse 38. Verse 39 says, And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. This man was desperate. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight followed him, glorifying God, and all the people, when they saw it, give praise to God. Now, if you stop here and you say, who then can be saved? Well, the poor. Blind beggars on the side of the road because it is hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. Are you seeing this here? Right after that question, you get an answer. Yeah, it's hard for the rich, but look at the desperate poor people begging on the side of the road. They're crying, have mercy on me. But that's not the only answer. Then we get the next story. Verse 19, I mean, chapter 19, verse 1. 
he, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all, all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I want to start by answering that question that we've been asking. Who, who then can be saved? I want to then move and say, how can they be saved? And then I want to finally ask, what is salvation? So who can be saved? Notice that a blind, poor man is being contrasted with a rich man who's very difficult for rich men to get into heaven. But then we're introduced to another rich man. If you're going to understand the story of Zacchaeus, you need to understand something called parallelism that's normal in Hebrew literature. It's normal in the fact that what you're going to find in the first four verses of chapter 19 is there's going to be a step-by-step in each verse of progressing the story. Verse 5 is the climax interruption of these steps. And then there's a reverse pattern going the opposite direction down to verses 9 and 10. So let's, let's see the parallelism of this story. Look at verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Pause. Jesus' intention in Jericho is to not stay the night. We all there? What's the exact opposite of passing through? Staying the night. What happens in verse 9 and 10? Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Jesus is in the man's house. He's staying the night. Literally, the words in verse 7, when it says that they are all grumbling that he has gone to be the guest, it means to lodge, to stay the night in a man's house. Whoa, 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 what is going on where you have a man named Jesus traveling through, not staying the night. By the end of the story, he's staying the night. Let's look at verse 2. Behold. Notice the parallelism of this word, behold, in verse 8. Here's your compare and contrast. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and this man is terrible. Behold, there is a chief tax collector. 
Now, if you want, we spent a lot of time on July 4th weekend thinking about how terrible tax collectors are. Go back on the embassy website, and there's a whole long illustration about bad tax collectors. Insert all of that material, and if you didn't hear it, just know they're really bad. They're criminals. They're extortioners. They're not just IRS tax people. They're like, yeah, we don't like IRS people. No, these are awful criminal people. But he is a chief. It's the word arche tax collector. He is like the arch tax collector. It could mean that he is like the top dog tax collector, or he could just be the most notorious, well-known, awful tax collector. Either way, you get the point. He's passing through, but behold, there's a really bad man who's rich from being a criminal. Verse 8 says, this really bad man, behold, is standing before the Lord and saying, I want to give away all my goods. Do you see the compare and contrast between, behold, here's a bad man who's stealing money from people and making himself rich, to now he's giving all of his money away. Next step, verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. This parallels with verse 7. The crowd, all of them, are seeing what's happening, and they grumble. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Friends, you need to see this. First, the crowd is all for Jesus, so much so that little short Zacchaeus can't even see him or get close to him. Secondly, it's probable that when he says, on account of the crowd, it's not just because the crowds are so big and surrounding Jesus, but they do not want Zacchaeus to get close, or Zacchaeus is smart enough to know, I'm a short little guy, and i got to watch my back, because I know that these people don't like me. I could get beat up in that crowd. I could get stepped on. I could get run over. I could get stabbed in the back. They know who I am. I have a reputation of stealing their money. I'm going to stay outside the crowd. And because I'm short, I can't even see who Jesus is. Either way, we see the crowd is for Jesus, and they are opposed to Zacchaeus. What happens in the parallel verse? They're not thinking about Zacchaeus anymore but they are not for Jesus. The exact opposite of being all about Jesus and surrounding him, they are angry, they are grumbling, they are hostile, not toward Zacchaeus, but toward Jesus. Something happened between those verses that deferred the attention from Jesus positively to negatively. Step number four. It says in verse four, that Zacchaeus ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. If any of you were here last week, you already know what verse 4 is about. So he ran ahead. Do rich, Middle Eastern, well-respected men run? No. They don't. But this text says he did even more than that. He climbed a tree. To put this in perspective, in the 1960s, there was an American ambassador that was serving our country in the embassy of Egypt. So get the idea. American ambassador living in the embassy of Egypt 
And he wanted to fix a light fixture around the gate of the housing quarters that he was at. And he just felt like, look, I'm going to take care of this myself. So he climbed a tree and did it himself. And because he was so high and people could see him above the gate, rumors started to spread that the American ambassador is climbing a tree and changing his own light bulb. That word started to spread to the president of Egypt. And when there was a big gathering where the American ambassador and the president of Egypt were in the same room, he wanted to find out if this was true and asked him in front of everybody, did you really climb a tree? I do not believe this. Paint that 21st, 20th century, recent Middle Eastern culture. The president of Egypt is baffled at the fact that a a prestigious, wealthy, well-to-do man is climbing a tree. That could not be true. And sure enough, it was. When you get to this part of the story in verse 4, you should see Zacchaeus is humiliating himself. All dignity is gone at this point. When it says he was seeking Jesus, he's seeking Jesus. And he doesn't care what anybody else thinks about him. He is running. He is climbing trees. And he is running what appears to be a far distance. Now, I don't know if in your mind you're thinking of this picture. Here you got a little short Danny DeVito-like guy trying to hop around and he can't find him. And then he runs ahead and then like, oh, now I can see him. It's way far ahead, probably, because if you study in this first century culture, you'll know that sycamore trees were only allowed to be planted outside of the city and they could only be as close as 75 feet to the city because of how big and wide the branches were. And some people thought it was because of the appearance of the city and we couldn't clutter it up with all these big, huge tree limbs and other issues like that. So you can find in history records of sycamore tree permit places where they can be. And this outside of the city. So the idea is Jesus is what? Passing through the city. And now he's getting toward the outskirts of the city. And there Zacchaeus is, climbed up in a tree. And he has lost all dignity of himself because he wants to see who this Jesus is. That's verse 4. The exact opposite of this is Zacchaeus is climbing down a tree, and he has not lost all dignity. He has all joy. So what, my friends, caused these chain of events? Verse 5. This is the center part of the story. Verse 5 says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, do any of you wonder, how in the world did he know his name? Like, where did that come from? Zacchaeus. Two possible explanations. One, Jesus is the Son of God and the prophet who knows what people are thinking. I mean, read through your Gospels. Jesus knows stuff that other people don't know, even when they don't realize what's going on. Second possible explanation. The crowds are making fun of Zacchaeus. The crowds were not letting Zacchaeus in. And Jesus has saw what's going on with these crowds. And then he sees the actions of Zacchaeus and he takes notice. Two possible explanations. Either way, if you're Zacchaeus up in that tree, 
you're wondering at this point, I think he probably would have fallen out of that tree, right? Startling. Imagine you, like, I don't even know you, Jesus. You're speaking my name. Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Could it be that the Jericho crowd has in fact repeatedly invited Jesus to stay in their house? And he said, no, I'm just passing through. Then he gets to the tree. He's almost out of the city. And he goes, you know, I think I'm going to stay at Zacchaeus' house. Do you see how radical, how crazy, how startling this would be in all of that context? So no wonder Zacchaeus is joyful and hurries down the tree. No wonder that he is going to accept this invitation. And no wonder all of these people are grumbling, what? No, we want you to stay at our house. You said you were just passing through. Why are you? And of all people, Zacchaeus? I think if we understand this parallelism, you'll understand why verse 5 is the center and why it comes shortly after the story of the rich young ruler. Who then can be saved? How difficult is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, humanly speaking, it's impossible for anyone to be saved. But with God, with transforming grace and love, all things are possible and anyone, including rich criminals, can be changed. I hope you're seeing that in Luke's gospel account, when we get to this story of a rich man who's being saved, you should be in awe of the power of God's love and grace and majesty. Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector. He's not just a rich tax collector. He is a chief tax collector. This is mind-blowing. The rich man obeyed the rules, was well-respected, and everybody thought, of course he's in. But no, it's Zacchaeus. Even rich, extortioning, disrespectful, oppressing criminals. I want you to see the contrast not only with Jesus saving Zacchaeus, the rich man, after the rich young ruler, but the two Jericho stories, the oppressed beggar and the oppressor, Zacchaeus, both have faith and come home. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're oppressed or you're the oppressor, whether you're religious or not really religious, do you know, as you're listening here to the word of God, that Jesus' salvation that he has come to bring is for any of you today? Which brings us to our next question. How? If it's for anyone, how do we get saved? How does Zacchaeus get saved? How does he contrast with the rich young ruler? Notice again, Jesus is at the beginning in verse 1. He's in the middle and the important middle of verse 5. And he's at the end of verses 9 and 10. Jesus is passing through. He doesn't want to stay, but oh, he does want to stay at Zacchaeus' house. And by the end of the story, he's in Zacchaeus' house. In other words, 
verse 3 says something I think really interesting. If you want to get an understanding of this whole story, look at verse 3 and then verse 10. And he, Zacchaeus, was seeking to see who Jesus was. Here's a story of a man seeking Jesus. And seeking somewhat hard. No, 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 no. This is not a story about a man seeking Jesus. This is a story about a God seeking a sinful man. Who's seeking who you're supposed to ask at the end of verse 9 and 10? For the reason this story is in the Bible, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Why did Zacchaeus get saved? Why did Jesus come and say, I want to stay at your house today? Because who's seeking who? What a wonderful thing for you to think about as you think about your life, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian today. If you're a Christian, I want you to think back in your life and ask yourself, you know, maybe there was a time I was searching the scriptures. Maybe there was a time I was searching to find out who God was. But have you ever asked yourself, why? What was God doing around your life? Who did he put into your life to stir you on to the scriptures? What was going on that led Zacchaeus to want to completely humiliate himself in front of this crowd to say, I don't care, I just need to find Jesus? Something's happening in his heart. Something's going on where you take a rich criminal who cares about his dignity and respect to not care anymore. Even before Jesus gets there, you've got to understand God's at work. Isn't that not true in your own life? I can still remember the day. I was in eighth grade, and I remember this idea dropping down like a ton of bricks on my heart, leading me to just weep. Why, God, out of all of the seven billion people in the world, did you have me born into the family that I was born into? Have you ever thought about that? Or do you just think that you searched God because you found out who God was? Because with man, yeah, you can get saved. No. If Luke 18 and 19 tell us anything, you're saved because God, God sought you out. Salvation is rooted in Abraham. See this? He is a son of Abraham. Salvation is coming to a man who is the son of Abraham. How did Abraham get saved? Was he searching for God ultimately? Or did God pluck him out of the Babylonian land of the Chaldeans, the land of Ur, and say, I'm going to make you the father of many nations? Friends, I think there's probably a way for you to, humanly speaking, talk about your salvation as your human efforts to search God. But I think there's another way to rewrite that whole narrative and say, did you see how God was plucking you out just like he did Abraham, and you are a son and daughter of Abraham that God has sought you out. Does that not bring anyone comfort here this morning? That this is the God of the Bible, that Jesus is incarnately showing his seeking nature. God is a seeker and a saver of that which was lost. What implications this must have for Embassy Church as we seek to follow the example and the ministry of Jesus? Are we the kind of church that says, hey, if you're lost, you just got to come to us when it's convenient? Or are we seekers of the lost? 
Are we those that want to invite people into our homes and have meals with them to explain, here is the good news of Jesus Christ? Friends, may God move and stir your heart that as you meditate on the fact that God has sought you out, may that just fuel the fire for you to seek others out. This is where that comes from. When you realize you had no choice about where you were born, you had no choice about that college friend that shared the gospel with you, you had no choice about all kinds of things, but in God's providence, he has sought you, and here you are today. Could it be that maybe some of you in this room, that this is God's seeking of you right now? Why are you here today? Is it because you're searching for God, or is maybe God seeking you? Similarly, we need to think about Zacchaeus. There is a searching. There is a human side of salvation. God does seek us out. It seems like he's the initiator in salvation history. But I think we all need to ask ourselves, are you willing to climb a tree? I mean, not literally, of course. But what did it mean for Zacchaeus to climb a tree? Are you willing to seek Jesus out, follow him, and embrace him no matter what others might say about you? Are you willing to humiliate yourself and have the crowds, the friends, the family members? They might turn against you like this crowd did. But is the joy of coming and bringing Jesus into your house so overwhelmingly better that you could care less. I wonder if you've experienced such surpassing joy in Jesus that all else begins to fade away. If so, then you're starting to understand in your own heart and life what salvation's really all about. But it does take a humbling. It does take a humiliating. They might laugh at us, Self-righteous and religious people might get angry at you because you're not following the rules the way you're supposed to. We'll be misunderstood all the time, friends. If we follow the way of Jesus, we'll have self-righteous people angry with us, thinking we're too liberal with grace. We'll have our friends make fun of us because we're going home with Jesus, the man who befriends tax collectors and sinners. That's how salvation comes. We have one more question. We know who it's for. It's for anyone who would humble themselves before God, whether you're rich or poor. Even though it's hard for rich, it's for anyone. We know how it comes. It comes because Jesus is the seeker. He's the savior. Finally, what is this salvation that we're looking for? Well, technically speaking, the word salvation, as you see it in your Bible, it means to rescue from danger. That's what just literally the word means, to rescue someone or something from danger. Today, verse, nine, verse 10 of chapter 19, today, rescue from danger has come to this house. Okay, let's think about this for a second. Rescue from danger. Zacchaeus is a rich man. He's got everything he could want. He doesn't look like he's in danger. Okay, if, if, if you're thinking, 
Uh, interesting question. This is the first and only time Jesus uses this word salvation in all of Luke's gospel. Okay, maybe now we're starting to see what in the world is going on here when he says, today salvation has come into this house. Jesus uses the, the verb form, save, but doesn't say this word salvation. And, and why? If you know your Bible, so let's Bible quiz time. You know your Bibles. When is the first couple times the word salvation appears in the Bible altogether? Answer, Exodus 14 and 15. As God delivers the people of Israel from slavery from Egypt, rescues them from danger. And so, chapter 15, they're worshiping and celebrating. Our God has brought salvation, rescue from danger. I just wonder, could it be that Zacchaeus, in our minds, doesn't seem to be a slave, but he is working for the Roman government? Could it be that he doesn't seem like Zacchaeus is a slave, but he is a slave to his sin? And could it be that Jesus is not just saving Zacchaeus, but salvation and rescue from danger is coming to the whole town of Jericho? This was something I never thought about before. But Zacchaeus is the best of the best tax collector. He's the ark chief tax collector. To save this man the way Jesus did is to rescue Jericho from a lot of danger. I think there could be layers of meaning in terms of Jesus' words, today salvation has come. But one of the things you need to understand is that salvation, what is it? It's not a teaching. It's not a set of principles. It's not rules. Salvation is answered by this question. What is salvation? It's whatever came into Zacchaeus' house. It's not a what, it's a who. Today, salvation, the rescue from slavery, like the Exodus, is in your house, Zacchaeus. Today, Jesus is in your house. And salvation has come. The word here, has come, is a divine passive. It means to be brought into. Zacchaeus didn't do anything to bring this in. It was brought into his house passively. He just received it by receiving Jesus into his house. You following here? Today, salvation has come is saying salvation is not like the prophets of the Old Testament. Salvation is not like the prophets of Muhammad or Buddha or Gandhi, where they talk about the way or the teaching of salvation. No, no, no. Salvation is Jesus Christ. He is salvation. Do any other world religions make any even close to that claim? Oh, I hope you're starting to see how uniquely different the teachings and claims of Jesus are today when you see today salvations in your house because Jesus is declaring, do you remember sons of Abraham? Do you remember how sons of Abraham were saved from slavery in Egypt? They were saved by the righteous, mighty hand of God. Not because they were obeying the Ten Commandments, because they didn't even have the Ten Commandments yet. It's not because of their righteous good deeds. It was because of God's incredible seeking. Because of his mercy, he rescued them out of slavery. And so Jesus is embodying all of that in his person and saying, see, salvation has come to you and your house today. A salvation that transforms, 
a salvation that makes lives get flipped upside down. That's why if you say here today, hey, I'm a Christian, but hey, I have no transformation in my life, we start to ask, I don't know if you're a Christian. Christians don't necessarily give away half of their goods to the poor, but they are changed. Because when love like verse 5 comes to you like this, you can't be the same ever again. That's what salvation is. It's all-encompassing. It's not just a message that here is Jesus. It's a transformation, experiencing the very love that Jesus has declared and lived out in his life and then ultimately in his death. One last final observation about salvation. Did you notice the way that everybody seems to be anti-Zacchaeus? But by Jesus' costly actions of love in verse 5, he takes on all of that. Jesus becomes the substitute. He takes the place. Did Jesus deserve to be treated that way by the crowds? Did Jesus deserve the hostility that the crowds were giving when they were grumbling and upset with him that he stayed with this man? In just a few more days, those same kind of crowds would start yelling these words, crucify him. Do you see that as Jesus hangs on a cross outside of the city and the crowds yell, crucify him, Jesus takes your place just like he took Zacchaeus' place and defers not just the wrath of the crowds, but the wrath of God Almighty that was once hanging over you for all who believe in the Son, as Andy read earlier in John 3.36, they will have eternal life, rescued from danger, and be saved. Closing story in conclusion. I've told this story before. It's about a man named C.T. Studd, but I think almost like 90% of you weren't at the church at this time. This is when we were like, 20 people large. So, C.T. Studd. Show of hands. How many of you have ever heard of C.T. Studd before? The, those of you that were at church that last time, which you see how many there were, and then all of you either forgot or you're new. So welcome. C.T. Studd is the equivalent of Michael Phelps at the Olympics. You guys know who Michael Phelps is? We all got that one? Okay, yeah, yeah. The greatest swimmer or Olympian that people have ever seen. The most decorated Olympian. C.T. Studd in the sport of cricket was the greatest world-class cricketer that anyone had ever seen. He's got records that just last through the ages. This man hears the gospel of Jesus Christ, gets converted, and in his prime, not as he's retiring like Michael Phelps, but imagine like right after Beijing Olympics, Michael Phelps gets eight gold medals in one Olympics, and he says, guys, I'm not going to be back next Olympics because I have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I am going to go make disciples of all nations all around the world. Do you think that would get anybody's attention in the media? Well, it did. And through C.T. Studd's conversion and through his ministry, he led all kinds of people to the nations. It's an incredible story, which is why I think his name is C.T. Studd. He's a stud. But just imagine 
What would give a guy, a rich guy, a wealthy man, a popular man like C.T. Studd or Zacchaeus or the rich young ruler, somebody in that sort of dignified position, what would cause them to say, I'm giving it all up and I'm doing it joyfully for the sake of the gospel? Hear these words. If Jesus Christ is God, and if he has died and sacrificed for me, then there is no sacrifice that could be too great for me to make for him. That's why. That's what hit C.T. Studd's heart in life, and what transformed not just him, but a whole nation of people as he preached the gospel. I mean, because just imagine... If someone with the stature of Michael Phelps started asking people, would you give Jesus a consideration here? He filled arenas full of people when he preached the gospel in England and then called all of them to go to the mission field with him, and a lot of them did. What a cool story. But it's just a cool story unless you see that this is true for you too. Can you say... If Jesus Christ is God and he has so died and sacrificed for me, then there is no sacrifice that could be too great for me to make for him. Do you see how verse 5, like love and sacrifice, compels Christians like you and me to give all for Jesus, no matter what he could ask? Let's pray together.